3: You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer,
2: more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. We are five episodes away from 400. I can't believe we've been around that long that we've done that many episodes. And actually, we probably overshot that mark already with some of our up-to-dates, which I don't really count. But in this run-up to 400, I decided that I want to talk to some of the people that either I really like, who have been friends along the way, or whose work I really admire, or hit on topics that, well, I just really think about all the time. So this week, I wanted to talk about, well, consciousness, (laughs) probably the topic that I cover most frequently on this podcast, because it's something, of, of course, that's very interesting to me personally. And recently, my friend Patrick House published a book that was a long time in the making. I met Patrick one time when we were doing an evening in which Two neuroscience trained individuals were teaching people how to paint cats. (laughs) Um, It made a lot of sense at the time. And if you know Patrick, you'll know that he infuses his work with artistry and poetry and a lot of passion for what he does. He has a PhD from Stanford University and his scientific research focused on free will and how mind control parasites alter their hosts behavior. But he's probably best known for his writings on science, technology, and culture for The New Yorker, Nautilus, and Slate. And he's even published fiction in the top scientific journal, Nature. Patrick House, welcome to Inquiring Minds.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: I'm so excited to have you on the show, Patrick.
3: (laughs) It's been a long time.
2: You finally wrote a book.
3: I finally wrote a book. Yeah, not everyone will know that we've known each other for many, many years.
2: Yeah, and I feel like um, there have been a number of different instantiations of of uh, of book ideas, and maybe you have you know five more on the back burner now that you're a uh, you know a, a published trade book author. But let's, like, I mean, this this one was so different from some of the earlier ideas that you had told me about. So. How, you know, how did you come up with the, you know, behind
3: the the scenes? Um, Yeah. Yeah. uh, It's odd even to say this book started because that would that would like be using grammar incorrectly because it'd be misleading because it was a different book that actually started this process. So you're right. Um, So somewhere, somewhere, I think, during my postdoc or right after I wrote a New Yorker piece, I'd always written kind of popular science on the side. I wrote a, a piece for the New Yorker on Uh, the role of elegance in science. So I had always, I had, I had for years, I had had this kind of like almost amateur interest in this idea since um, there was a, so I did grad school at Stanford and there was a professional, like I think professional development seminar that all the grad students had to go to, all the neuroscience grad students. And an editor from the NPG, Nature Publishing Group, came and talked about what it takes to get a paper in Nature, right? And so this is a long debated thing in science, right, about what the merit of the very top tier journals and whether or not you should need one to get a faculty job and advance your career and all that. But nonetheless, it is still the case, despite all the debate, that like you want your top tier papers, right? And this Nature editor uh, was listing the qualities of the kinds of things that end up as a Nature paper, And as she listed them, each of them was kind of objective and about like the the tools and the scientific rigor and the methodology and the repeatability and the power and all all these things. And then she said, and then there's a certain, and and I swear this might be a false memory, but the way I remember it, she blushed and looked at the ground, like looked at her feet and said, there's a certain elegance to nature papers. And I was, and I remember just being like, wait, excuse me what like um I, I i mean i know what you mean but what do you mean like you can't you can't define our careers on this like it, you know uh, and so I, I i spent a while researching this and it ended up as a new yorker piece where i kind of made the beginnings of an argument about how elegance has worked extremely well in physics and mathematics the, the last couple centuries um as like observations compressed down into something like e equals mc squared or f equals ma right it's very useful to take large amounts of data and collapse it into something simple but in biology it's possible that that, that, that same tool might not be as useful biology is kind of messy it's not it's not as neat it's not as it's not as it, if you put the, if you have the same input you you want the same output in physics if you have the same input in biology, who the hell, you have no idea what's going to happen still, right? Like there's a kind of a scrambler in there somewhere. And so I sold a book. I wrote this New Yorker piece and I ended up writing a proposal and, and selling a book about elegance. And it would be, it was going to be a large uh, kind of investigation into elegance across many different disciplines, not just neuroscience, not just physics. And what I was told was that an article can, you can, ask a question but in a book you have to answer it
2: Mm -hmm.
3: so my so my uh my 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 task was to nail down definitively this uh abstract concept of elegance and i and i just kind of four years later i had turned in multiple manuscripts and they were like you know this just isn't working uh you don't seem to have answered it and i was like well it turns out it's kind of hard um i mean i i ended up I went to the Congo to find there's like a, there's a gentleman society that dresses. I remember, yeah. right. I yeah, still want to read that. The... Like, yeah, yeah. Well, so and there, it's fascinating. There are basically these dandies in the living in the center of the um what what is what used to be called the most dangerous city in the world, Goma, in the eastern side of the DRC, and they dress immaculately in like high European fashion. And they call themselves the ambiance makers for the preservation of elegance. And I, so I studied that. I compared it to what the nature editor said. And I went to the Concord elegance, which was like a car show. And there was a, a, a goldfish beauty competition in China where the, there was like the most elegant goldfish. Uh, and I was trying to like figure out the like unifying theory <laughs> of all these. And, uh, at some point, my publisher was like, "Look, let's let's get a book out. Do you want to write a book about the brain?" And this is the behind the scenes that isn't supposed to come out, but but. Um, but
2: you know, it's it's fascinating because this book is so creative and original and a completely different look into consciousness that I feel like understanding this struggle that came beforehand kind of gives us an appreciation of. Of, of how this came about, because if you set out to write a book about consciousness, I'm not sure this would have been the book.
3: No, I don't think it would have been the book. Yeah. Uh, and I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have been able to sell this as a proposal, like like at the back end of the New York publishing world, if I had said, I'm going to do this kind of avant-garde adaptation of an old Chinese book of poetry and relate it through translation science to consciousness um, maybe I should give a small primer. Yeah,
2: that. yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I was going to say, and I, I was going to preface it by saying, you know, um, some people start books, not me, of course, certainly not, uh, without reading the introduction. And I feel like if anyone did that for this book, they, they would be like, what is going on? So give us the introduction.
3: Yeah, there was just, uh, uh, I think there was hopefully not apocryphal story about the kafka's manuscript the trial which is apparently that he wrote all the chapters and they were meant to be read in a random order like everyone was supposed to be able to pick it up at any different time and at some point this 19 ways of looking at consciousness someone was like can you can these be read in a random order because if so then you don't have a book you have a collection of essays and they they made they made very clear that you have there has to be a reason for the order or else it's just it's just chaos
2: and then um, there's Kaleidoscope, the Netflix series, where you're supposed to watch it in any order. So maybe that's turning oh, around. Oh, really? But anyway, yeah. Oh, I didn't I did know. Oh, you that. haven't seen um, it? Yeah, there's a new Netflix series. It's a heist, and you're supposed to be able to watch it in any order as long as you watch the last episode last. But anyway. Fascinating. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So this book started a long, long time ago, actually, um, when I was handed by a friend a copy of 19 Ways of Looking at Wong Wei. Uh, and this was in undergrad, and just a friend had said, hey, I think you'd like this. And it's an extremely small book, which is a series of 19 translations of an old Chinese poet, Wang Wei. And it's a single four-line poem called Deer Park. And the entire book is just in 900 AD. Here's here's a translation in like 1100. Every couple centuries, someone tries to translate this one tiny poem and the book is just a collection of the 19 different ways of looking at what way and what i loved about it and it it just kept recurring in my mind over and over as i got more and more and into neuroscience and learned more and more through my phd and everything was just that like the the premise of that book is that none of the translations are correct that the the original uh, the, liter- the literal original is lost, so all we have left are the translations. And that the same thing can mean different things. So, like with the specifically Chinese ideograms, uh, the characters, depending on the context, but also depending on the whim of the author, they can they can be interpreted as like X or not X, or blue or green or black, or you know itself or its opposite. And I just found that really beautiful that like there was not a one-to-one mapping or relationship between one of these Chinese characters, written characters, and the concept or the idea itself. And that just feels to me like most people when they have debates about consciousness and the brain and subjectivity and when they're trying to get across what it's like on the inside of their head and someone else says, no, for me, it's different. They get so angry because they assume there's a correct way. And there's not a correct way. It's, it's, it's translation. And so what I kind of wanted to do was mimic the feeling of reading that book, but kind of adapted with a bunch of modern theories of neuroscience. And so I I took, instead of a four-line poem, I took a single, uh, ironically, nature paper that I liked, um, uh, an elegant one. It was a one-page elegant nature paper, and just told that story 19 different times. As if you believed in a certain way, as if you, if you kind of translated it nineteen times.
2: And and to me, what, what sort of the the brilliance of this book is that maybe it, and and look, there is a kind of conclusion uh, because there's a there's a surprise Easter egg twentieth chapter, <laughs> which pulls uh-huh. a lot of this stuff together, which is like your your way of thinking about this. But it also, you know, I think a, a lot of the books out there about consciousness do sort of. At least hitch most of the of the ride on one particular theory, and then try to you know walk you through that. And 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 there is yeah there is this sense that like you know this is a hard problem for a reason that we we all have different brains, and therefore consciousness is going to be different um, in fundamental ways in each of our minds. And so you know to have this you know, to basically give us permission to say, look, here are 19 different avenues by which you can think about this hard problem and one of them might be more resonant to you than the others, but it's also useful to see these other perspectives. To me, it's just like, you know, that I really enjoyed that. And I felt like it was a very different, it it was liberating to read your book, because I felt like I didn't have to fact check you, I didn't have to disagree, I didn't have to be like, oh, but you know, it's like, because then, you know, I'd go to chapter seven. And oh, yeah, now, now this is like more the sort of, you know, answering some of the problems I had with chapter two, um, etc.
3: Yeah. And, and it's sometimes contradictory. Which, like, I'll, I'll, uh, as 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 the Wang Wei translations would sometimes have green for one character and black for another, or shade for one character and light for another. Like, there's there's there are contradictions, which is like you're not allowed to do that, right? You're not supposed to be able or allowed to do that. There's this there's this expected consistency that that um, we expect kind of of our writers, and I and I do think sometimes when you're writing like a Eighty thousand word manuscript, and you're expected to be consistent. That very rarely reflects the debate on the inside of your head. Any good scientists kind of debate. It's never about a certainty that they then have to put on, on a page, right? And I, I think there's actually almost a, um, I, I almost have a, a lot of a lot of books also on consciousness tend to come from scientists often later in their careers. I'm I, being kind of general, but just perhaps might be universally true despite being a generalization and they despite having nothing at stake because they have tenure they still have something at stake whereas i've kind of moved out of academia i don't have a lab i'm not trying to get grants based on my research which is you know argued for within the book i'm treating it more i i treated this book more as a outsider from neuroscience than an insider like i tried to be like okay how would i um how would i almost as a journalist or anthropologist like recite the theories as i've heard them in the field
2: yeah but i also think that there's there's an artistry to your writing i mean you've always been you know there there's there's a, a, you're you know a, you're a writer at heart that goes beyond just um and i don't want to diminish science communication and but you know it's like it's like there's all there's always been this core of poetry in your writing and i feel like that comes through too, and I and and I appreciate it because it matches the subjectivity of the conscious experience. When you have, when you you know, you sort of acknowledge that you know you are also in some ways like you have a subjective voice, and, and it and it falls through. But you know, before I give you, you know, it just becomes me. As a sycophant, telling you how great I think your book is, <laughs> uh, we could do that for another thirty minutes, but uh, I think some of our listeners might get annoyed. Uh, let's talk about the actual case study or the nature paper, uh, yeah. as you as you say it. Um, let's start there. So, what 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 was this paper, and why did it capture your attention?
3: Yeah, um, so I was asked by the uh, California Academy of Sciences one year to give a uh, lecture on Halloween. So at the time, my PhD research was in. Mind control parasites, Toxoplasma gondii, which is like a little parasite that infects mice and makes them not not afraid of um, not afraid of cats anymore, or arguably some of them not afraid of cats anymore. So that was my thesis. So I had I had long been thinking about like the ways in which behavior could be perturbed in a natural setting. Right, that's what these mind control little things are supposed to do. Because in in nature, the parasite can only reproduce in a cat, so it has to get from one cat to another cat. And it uses this mouse as like a little intermediate host, and so I had spent you know six be- well, years. But, I mean,
2: be- yeah, because the cat poops it out, and then the mice yeah. eat the poop, right? Okay. Oh. Yep.
3: The cat poops it out. Uh, this is known to any family uh, woman who gets pregnant or wishes to that you're supposed to not clean the cat litter box. It's the same parasite. That's right. And that same parasite, its natural life cycle. We're not. We're the accidental hosts. We're the dead end hosts. It doesn't want to be in us. Uh, its natural life cycle is via the mouse or the rodent. Uh, which then brings it back to the other cat, brings it to the next cat, so to speak. Um, Unless cats so, started
2: eating us, which, you know, might happen someday. Right.
3: right. Okay. There was that one, Sorry. like, Val will kill Mer film in the 90s, <laughs> I think, like Ghost in the Darkness. <laughs> That's yeah, the only yeah. pro pro Toxoplasma <laughs> film that I've ever seen. Might have been curb Russell. And then maybe it was both of them. Um, and so... So I've been thinking a l- for a long time about this kind of manipulation of behavior, manipulation of will. The scariest thing to me is that the little mice doesn't know he, he or she has the parasite, right? So they, they, they're just going about their day conscious, obviously, uh, uh, thinking they like certain things uh, and, and dislike other certain things. And then one day it just flips, and they don't know why. And to me, that's scary. And so the California Academy of Sciences asked me to give a talk on Halloween. on on the theme of monsters. And I was, and I was, I just said, can I talk about whatever I want? And they were like, yeah, yeah, sure. Which I think they assumed they were getting mind control, parasite zombie, you know, the last of us kind of thing. Um, But what they got was me telling a story about a neurosurgery in the mid nineties where a a teenage girl who had uh, seizures, she had seizures of unknown kind of source and origin. And she was getting, in the, in the process of the kind of neurosurgical time, which can take days or weeks after the surgery itself when they've implanted the electrodes and they're waiting to hear... Um, yeah, yeah, L- let, let me jump in because yeah, this you is know what I so did for more. my PhD.
2: <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me give you a little hand I thought
3: here. we were playing some <laughs> like, uh, you're pretending to not know way the hell more than me. <laughs> about
2: this. Um, no, no, no. Okay. I only know about, you know, this particular surgery because this is exactly what I did my PhD on. Um, so essentially, yeah, they they the neurosurgeons trying to figure out where the seizures are starting um, because when the drugs aren't working to control the seizures, it can be better to take out the brain region where, you know, the nucleus of the seizures. Are beginning um, or the or the foci uh, of the seizures so that they don't keep damaging the brain because you know you have lots of seizures that can ultimately cause you know damage to the brain. So they, they need to figure out, okay, like exactly where are these seizures starting, because we don't want to take out brain regions that are not involved because we like to keep as much brain as possible. So what they do is they stick these electrodes into the brain. Um, And over the course of 10 to 14 days, um, the person, the patient is on in the ward being observed and they're trying, they're waiting for a seizure to happen. And, you know, sometimes they sleep deprive them if it's not happening, you know, they take off. So so basically, yeah. So you've got this patient who's got these electrodes implanted in potential locations and they're being monitored for electrical activity in these brain regions and waiting for a seizure to start so that the surgeons can say, aha, it's in that area.
0: See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
1: Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? more confident, capable surgeons and even more importantly
0: patients who can see
1: explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at Meta.com slash Metaverse Impact
3: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or Mc Crispy Sandwich but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day that crispy
0: fish, that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese, that pillowy bun yeah,
3: you get it every time
1: and if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
3: And so I need you to write the forward to the book and explain <laughs> that much more clearly than I ever could. Um, and so... They're, they're going around and they're testing different regions, right? I think they have just scientific <laughs> permission to go in and ask, they ask the patient, can we do a little bit of science on the side as you're sitting?
2: Yeah, and, because because this is like the only opportunity to directly record, right? In the deep of the brain. Yeah.
3: yeah. So then, yes, yeah. and so, so then we say,
2: hey, and they're bored. The patients are bored. So they're like, yeah, sure, I'll do your task.
3: Yeah. And Dr. Freed, Told me once, who I believe was your PhD advisor. Yeah, right? he was my yeah. PI. <laughs> <laughs> so he told me once that he sees it kind of like the the Large Hadron Collider for neuroscience. Like you have this, you have this very tiny moment of uh, uh, to to peek into the window, you know, the hallowed window of the the soul and brain.
2: Exactly. Um, and so
3: anyway, so they're stimulating various parts, and she has an electrode over her supplementary motor area. They stimulate it at a certain kind of amps and current and uh she laughs and i've and i've seen video of this and you know it's just so fascinating because she laughs and the the surgeon kind of almost has a dial that he can turn up and down the response and it's a kind of light mirth at lower amps and and uh at like kind of when when he turns it to 11 you know this is spinal tap style she just can't stop laughing it's uncontrollable laughter and the fascinating thing is that she, to me, the one of the fascinating things is that she self-reported the actual feelings of joy and mirth and those 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 icky things of subjective consciousness that you know philosophers and neuroscientists have such trouble defining. Um she had them. And of course, you know, this feels like, well, yeah, of course maybe she has them. Or why why wouldn't she? You know, these these things, these areas of the brain are being stimulated. But to me, it was so profound that she when giving answers to why she laughed, when she didn't know the stimulation was happening, and she really, and so some of the time the laughter, the surgeon didn't tell her he was turning the dial, and she just made up reasons. She just made up various different reasons, and they were different every time. And she confabulated slightly plausible, but ultimately made up and inaccurate reasons for why she laughed. That that pesky question why, and it immediately reminded me of my phd work which is like why does the mouse run towards the cat the mouse can't if the mouse could self report you know they wouldn't say there's a protozoan parasite nestled probably in my like ventromedial hypothalamus that is skewing my like innate uh uh, uh, responsiveness to defensive stimuli like like they're just gonna be like i don't know i kind of like the light is nice over there and to me that's infinitely more terrifying so i so i told Going back to that Cal Academy Halloween story, so my Halloween scary story, you know, campfire story was just that. It was just when you laugh, maybe it's possible you've never actually known the real reason you laugh. So to me, it was a it was a small story about a much bigger thing, and and so yeah, that's the story I tell nineteen different ways uh, in the book.
2: Yeah, and you, you know, it, it it also you know there there is this. Um... Michael Gazaniga, who who is um, working with split brain patients. So that's another um, surgery to treat epilepsy, where you cut the corpus callosum, the big fiber tract that joins the left and right hemisphere to at least keep the seizure in one hemisphere. And then when that happens, you essentially have a person who has a left hemisphere that has relatively, you know, that has good language skills and a right hemisphere that doesn't know what the left hemisphere knows. And and doesn't have really good language skills. And so if you show something to the right hemisphere and that results in a behavior, like for example, the patient then draws what it was that you, you know, said or showed to the to the right hemisphere. The left hemisphere when you ask it, "Why did you do that?" doesn't just say, "I don't know." It makes up a story. <laughs> it essentially will say cuz I felt like it. And so that is like this like scary sort of part of consciousness that like we, you know, we don't know why we do the things that we do. And yet we don't know what we don't know. You know, we like make up stories to sort of make sense of the world. Um, So let's talk about some of the, I mean, we can't probably hit all 19, um, but like, can you pick one or two favorite ones and give us a kind of deep dive into, you know, how that particular, like, what's your favorite pet theory besides like your grand old theory?
3: um, I Like, it turns out that despite me pretending that I'm being agnostic, of course, this book is suffused with my actual opinion on the matter, right? <laughs> it's hard. It's hard not to. I, I, I wanted to act like I was kind of ghostwriting each chapter. But ultimately, I ended up, you know, just by virtue of an act, uh, selection and curation is in and of itself an action. Uh, which expresses my opinion, right? Like I've chosen the ones that I believe are interesting and less so, but plausible uh, in in some cases. Um, My favorite question to ask rather than theory. So I I often try to think about what, I I kind of take the point of view of an astronomer from a thousand years ago who might be being presented with, many, many different theories of how the stars move or many, many different theories of gravity, right? Like you could easily imagine a book in in like ancient Babylon. I don't know if they had printers, you know, uh, uh, which was like 19 ways of looking at like celestial motion. And it would be a bunch of different theories about how, why the stars moved the way that they do. And all of them would be wrong, right? And so I presume that all of 19 of these are wrong. Despite the fact that I know many of these people and they're lovely, brilliant people, and you know, many, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hitching my career on, on on this as well, the study of this, um, I presume that all 19 are wrong, and so I kind of like turning that question a little bit into what's your favorite question to ask, and and my favorite, my favorite chapter in here, or my favorite way. And I say that only because it started with the question I find most compelling, which is how do you define the borderline, the exact border between inside and outside, the exact border between the where the consciousness ends and where it stops? That has it went, the more I think about it, the more it confuses me. There's a kind of mystifying fact what seems to be a mystifying fact to me that like, no matter how long I presume animals can get very large. They used to be supposedly much larger when there was like less oxygen. Right. And I can easily imagine that consciousness must fill the, whatever the subjective interiority of that organism is, it must fill all the way to the outside of the borders of their body. As much as it does to the fingertips of mine, you know, it feels like the end of my toe is my toe. It feels like the end of my finger is my finger. Um, and it feels like me versus the world, like not in a like angsty way, just in a, like, mm-hmm. a literal
2: yeah.
3: <laughs> physiological way. Um, and so, but that must also be true for blue whales. Uh, and it must also be true for whatever the larger historicism, the uh, history of the world is, which means like, I feel like there's some, someone should have the burden of proof to ask or explain, like how big can it get? And, so so to me that's like just a very interesting unanswered question is there a, is there a physical limit to the size of of a single conscious uh, self? Uh, and then of course you can ask how small you can get and I, and I feel like in this process we are asking ourselves similar questions to what physicists ask about like you know there's there's big gravity and there's like little gravity and they have to they have to figure out both in the same theory and it's very very difficult. but I also, Again, I think my thinking during my PhD motivated this, which is there are a lot of people have this parasite, and especially when I would you know I would stare at my mice, I would just like stare at them and, at, and, and like in the animal colony, and I'd just be like, what are you, you know? Okay, you have a parasite in your in your brain, and now like are you really different? I don't I don't get it. Like how are you different? And also, is your behavior so the mouse is now the mouse? The mouse looks like the mouse to me. It's the same mouse, the, the same physical shape. It's the same size, the same weight. It, the silhouette is the same. It casts the same shadow on the wall. And yet it has a protozoan parasite inside of it and its preferences have changed. And so to me, this question became like, is the mouse now the mouse plus the parasite or the mouse alone? And can you separate them? And and so like, if, if you were to ask, where does the mouse's consciousness end? Would you have to include the parasite in that? Be- and because if so, then I would argue you would have to include the electrodes when they were implanted in the in the girl during the surgery, right?
2: Yeah, and that and then there's you know there's people who um, who for example have a chip implanted to help them move a robotic arm, say if they're you know an amputee. And the question is, is like you know once they learn to control the chip using other neurons around it. Is the chip now like part of them or like, and then, you you know, you, you use this experiment or this thought, thought experiment to say, well, what if like 99% of the brain was a chip and they just had like one neuron left? Is that still a person, you know, is that, or is this like, I don't know. Yeah. It's a really interesting question.
3: Yeah. And, and I, I just like the feeling of the sense of self. It's so, I feel like, so. There is a chapter, of course, about elegance in here uh, which, where most of that research went into that, That, but most of that four years of that uh, the other book. Um, but there is something very compelling to me about the way that consciousness and my selfhood feels always consistent and elegant. And when I say elegant, I mean... There are no holes, there are no gaps, right It's always stitched together efficiently and perfectly. Like if you if I, if I were to have a stroke right now in like V1, I would just fill in any any blind spots we, you know there are literal blind spots and then we can induce some and you just kind of fill it in and you don't really notice. And no matter what you're given, you stitch this like comprehensive story that makes sense to you. Uh, you never you know you, you confabulate a reason for doing things. You rarely say I don't know. No matter how much kind of hemi neglect or any kind of incapacitation you have, you your your world is stable. The world is stable out there, despite the fact that we're moving our eyes three times a second. Like the world should look like a chaotic, jumbled mess to us, but it doesn't. It's this beautiful story that's told, and um, so I think it's extremely elegant in a way. And I am just continual I, I i'm just kind of mystified continually and what i really wanted to get across with this book honestly you know poetry can serve many or poetic poetic license can serve many different things but i what i really wanted what i get frustrated by when i read a lot of uh books the kind of the scientific explanations of consciousness or philosophy of of, of consciousness is the like declarative definitiveness of it often of like this is my argument and here is how it is this is exactly how the data fits it 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 has long removed to me what are the fundamental like emotional responses to studying the brain which is still the case that no matter how expert you are it's like awe-inspiring and mystifying because we don't know and i feel like you know much much as the teenage girl during the surgery could not say i don't know so many books out there refuse to say I don't know, and I feel like this was my way of saying, well, honestly, if I did know, it might be more, you know, I might have sold a few more copies if it actually solved anything. <laughs> um, but none of it did, and none of them have. So, so here we are.
2: Yeah, but I, I like that 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 approach too of pointing out in each of these ways of thinking about consciousness what is left that's unanswered by that particular. Um, perspective, and in not in a in a way that kind of you know you can imagine a series of well, this is why this theory is wrong, and this is why this theory is wrong' and that's also not very satisfying because there is some in each of the the theories there is some something that you can take away that it that is new knowledge and that is truthful and that does seem to be you know a plausible component of it,
3: yeah, i I mean, Again, I, that Babylonian book about 19 ways of looking at like celestial mechanics, like there might be little bits and pieces of, you know, one clause of one sentence per way might've been accurate. Like, you know, the observational stuff where they were like, well, most of the points of light seem to go in one direction. And then some of them circle back on themselves. That's a bit odd. Um, you know, that's true. <laughs> and, 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 and they're like, well, maybe, maybe those ones are closer. You know, maybe maybe one of the ways would have said that, and which is true. And so, like, there's little bits and pieces that you know will eventually. I do believe they'll eventually fit into some sort of like, oh, of course, you know. And and the thing that like bothers me is actually so when when you're studying gravity, uh, we're we're as a Newton and and we're in our little lab and. Let's see. I've actually never, I've never articulated this. Um, physics is like always there. Uh, every so time passes, it's a new second, it's a new minute. Physics is like still there to be tested. Right, the data is not gone. You can retest it at any given time. As in, like gravity was still was was working at minute one, and then the data, even if you didn't have your large hadron collider, then you would eventually have your LHC and you would eventually be able to test it. A thing which kind of, you know, keeps me up at night is that any unified theory of consciousness is going to have to explain every single moment of every person's experience. And nothing, nothing is outside of the realm of explanation. So it's, you know, your theory should have to explain when people come out of a coma What's the first thing they think, and why do they act lewd to, to everybody? Uh, every single moment of like slowly waking up and feeling like it's like a small city that like the lights are turning on one house at a time. You know, like you have to explain every every hallucination, you have to explain every psychosis, and every passing year that we don't we we don't collect the data on what it's like on the inside of your head this year you know, you're not getting your brain scanned this year for 365 days, 24-7, nor am I, nor is anyone on this planet. That data will be lost forever, right? So there's actually, you know, tens of thousands of years, or I guess maybe millions um, with respect to, I don't know how back, far back in the kind of tree of life we want to go to started. but like all that data isn't coming back. You can't go back in time and study it. So it's all being lost. So it's quite possible that there's actually... A very unique thing, a unique person, a unique mind that lived three thousand years ago that we will never see again. That's literally just lost to history. Physics doesn't really have that; they can always uncover something, and it doesn't really matter at what time point they uncover it. Biology, we're constantly losing. It's like it's like a, our our species are going extinct all the time um, in, in consciousness world.
2: Yeah, and you know, um, I, yeah, you know. I, it's it's an interesting, I hadn't thought about it that way, because, but it's so important because there's so many, like, you know, there's a big trend now in trying to understand how digital technology has changed our attention span and, you know, what we remember and how we remember and, you know, all these books out and, and research showing that, in fact, our brains are functioning differently as a result of the habits that we're, we're engaging in on a day-to-day basis and then you go back to you know Socrates on the invention of writing about how writing is going to be the death of memory because you know if you can write it down you don't need to remember it and so this is going to be this terrible invention that's going to turn everybody's brains to mush and so like and i yeah and i think about like well what was it like to 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 be around before writing like a, it, your mind must have been really different even even like in the last 20 years where you know you you had to go to a library to find a paper. Um, and then you know, that's like there was like all these steps that you had to take to get this knowledge. and now you can just put a prompt in and chat GPT can tell you all about it, you know whether it's factual or not. Um so I guess like what you know it is it is a bit like trying to herd cats uh, if you're if you're trying to like, you know, figure out how to make sense of all of this. But but it seems to me like from, you know, from reading your book from the last chapter that that's not really what you're after and that that's not like your ultimate goal. It didn't seem to me would be this unified theory of consciousness. So if that's not what this whole endeavor is about, what is it about? What
3: is it about? <laughs> um, I kind of think in part that like neuroscience, I don't, I. I'm not sure we've had our, like Galileo yet, or Newton, or whatever. But um, and so I, you know, I sit back and I question, like, what am I doing? Why am I studying consciousness? If, if I'm pretty sure that within my lifetime I might not have an answer, um, or if I know it's not going to be kind of me that comes up with it, I'm not going to have a unit named after me or anything fancy like that. Those physicists like units. Um, no, you might. There's lots of time left. <laughs> the the subject, <laughs> the unit of. Yeah, individual the experience, which which cannot be explained. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. I have a very SEO-proof noun for it, last name. <laughs> um, and so, honestly, the what what I said earlier about the the awe and the mystery of the brain. My genuine hope is that um, like some teenager reads it who would otherwise have gone into like surveying oil fields. And is a brilliant statistical, you know, statistical AI, machine learning kind of image person uh, who would otherwise be hired by Exxon to survey the Earth's crust will survey instead the like the mantle of the brain and the mind and and that will be, you know, he or she will be the Newton or Galileo of neuroscience. That it will happen, and it, and it kind of takes. I think, you know, I mean, I I, I do think there is merit. To having ideas to disprove, right? Which is what a lot of these theories and books and like, I'm not. I didn't. I didn't mean to kind of malign them too much in the beginning. Like that is work. That is providing a robust, like a, a really robust set of tools to think about things and to make sure that people don't make the same mistakes and go down the same like wrong paths, right? Which is extraordinarily useful. But I just wanted to get across to that one person who may read it that like these old neuroscientists with tenure they might tell you they have a theory and they might you know like get it on the lecture circuit and 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 give some podcasts and some talks and say like this is exactly how it works uh, but they don't they don't actually know um and that And that it's okay, and that this is the most exciting goddamn field in the world to get into because the mystery is still there and it remains. And it's actually, I think, really exciting all the work that the like kind of artificial intelligence and natural or artificial learning people are doing. Like I don't I don't think I don't think any of that will necessarily directly apply to neuroscience. Like maybe we'll have an AI that's a really nice kind of like uh, laboratory assistant that helps, you know, like what they've been doing with like protein folding and all that is, is miraculous. It's amazing. That shouldn't, they should get like five Nobel prizes. Um, but that's, that's a different kind of science than kind of unpacking consciousness. And I, but I think there's, it's really exciting to have this burgeoning field alongside of us. I see, I see these AI folk as working in parallel still, to to people that are trying to understand consciousness, even though they use words like consciousness a bunch and artificial general intelligence and everything, they're still in parallel. And the reason I am so excited about that is they're they're learning from scratch and really iterating. Some of the smartest mathematicians and stats people on the planet, the people that would be doing like the thermodynamic stuff in the 1800s and doing, uh, you know, like like the the Schrodingers and the, they were working with like advanced kind of like turbulence and entropy and discovering all that i feel like those people are all now in machine learning and doing this like weird hardcore new kind of statistics and new kind of math and they're learning they're learning about learning they're starting from scratch and learning about how systems learn efficiently and i think those learning rules will at some point they're going to bleed over and and someone is going to be able to make a connection and be like oh my god this is turns out to be implemented in the brain in this exact way, so so that's kind of exciting, and it's beyond me, right? Like I'm not gonna uh, I'm not gonna catch up <laughs> anytime soon. So so I just kind of hope that I, uh, someone reads it who who maybe is you know working in AI, and it's like actually what I really want to do is this soft consciousness.
2: You know, and I I do think, though, that like working with AI is changing our consciousness. You know, if you think about like working alongside a creative assistant, um, say, you know, uh, an AI that can, you know, you can pump all the works of Bach and all the jazz greats and then have them compose something that some, you know, comparison and that can influence like what a composer might come up with. You know, I do think that changes. You know, sort of, ha, you know, ha, the work as opposed to like in the past where it would have been just like a person and a blank sheet of paper. Um, so, you know, I, I think this comes back to the problem of like it's like sand between your fingertips. You're trying to capture it, but you know, you've you've got a with a sieve. But I also think that there will be a time where, you know, books uh, maybe are 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 considered antiquatedly cool, and somebody will hand a tattered copy of 19 ways of looking at consciousness by Patrick House to some undergraduate at a party <laughs> and they're going to come away uh, and have like a total epiphany just like you did with 19 ways of looking at one way.
3: Yeah, that's how it happened to me. Someone <laughs> handed me that book. It had been out for 20 years <laughs> at that point. And then, of course, the original, which was had you know, had been around since for 1200. Uh, it yeah. takes a while
2: yeah yeah. um but yeah, this is I feel like this is one of those special books that you know, if you you know people people who who love it are going to hold on to it for many decades are not going to just recycle it uh, and and then hand it off to another loved one because it really it, it's poetry and it's beautiful, and it's of course grounded in in a lot of science. So Patrick House, thank you for coming on inquiring Minds.
3: Thank you so much.
2: So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiring minds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Cheng, Sean Johnson, Jordan Miller, Kyla Raihalla, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer-Awald, Dale Master, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time.